And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read, but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. world welcome back to ripple girls book club my name is maggie and i am back with you this week with yet another wonderful interview as part of the miami book fair and as you all know by this point saray walker 3d umregard jacinda townsend and ingrid rojas contreras are just a few of the hundreds of authors from around the world gathering together in downtown miami for miami book fair 2022 the nation's largest gathering of writers and readers of all ages they, along with Patti Smith, Lisa Genova, Rabia Chowdhury, Cy Montgomery, and Sandra Cisneros, are so looking forward to sharing their work, thoughts, and new ideas with everyone in person and streamed live from the fair from Sunday, November 13th through Sunday, November 20th. Please visit MiamiBookFair.com for more information or follow MBF at, at MiamiBookFair, hashtag MiamiBookFair2022. Well, hello, Saray. Thank you so much for joining me today. Would you just start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Hi. Well, thank you so much for having me. Sure. You know, I, I have The Cherry Robbers, which is my second novel. And my first novel was, was Dietland, was published in 2015. And was in 2018, was turned into a television series for AMC. So I had quite a wild ride, <laughs> that first novel. And The Cherry Robbers is sort of just getting started. So we'll see what happens with that. But yeah, I'm really looking forward to being at the the festival. It should be a lot of fun and talking about gothic fiction with my my fellow panelists. So I'm really looking forward to it. I I'm based in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and I am working on a third novel. And I just moved into a new place, so I'm like just kind of in the middle of uh, unpacking hell at the moment. But I will try and be coherent and answer your questions. <laughs> Oh, I know how that goes. I moved into a house a year ago, and I feel like I'm still in that unpacking hell to a certain extent. Oh, I'm not surprised. It just doesn't end. It's like a bottomless pit. <laughs> it really is. It just keeps going. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so much for being here. Would you give us a, a quick synopsis of your novel, The Cherry Robbers? Sure. So I describe it as a gothic novel, and it it's bookended by a present day narrative. So a narrative that takes place in 2018, but the most of the novel takes place in the 1950s. So in the, in the present day narratives, we meet this very famous but reclusive painter and she lives in the high desert of Northern New Mexico. Her name is Sylvia Wren. And at the beginning of the novel, someone threatens to expose her real identity. And so she begins to look back at her life at the secret tragic past that she had that she just buried and didn't want didn't want to face really and so most of the novel deals with in the 1950s it starts off she's about 13 14 years old and she has five sisters so there are six sisters in the chapel family they live in a little village in connecticut they're very very wealthy so their father inherited this firearms manufacturer called the chapel firearms they live in this big victorian house that looks like a wedding cake <laughs> And the, all the daughters are named after flowers. So I wanted it to be this very lush, 
sensual story, lots of details about how things looked and tasted and felt. So the girl's mother is this very haunted figure and she thinks that their house is haunted by the ghosts of people that have been killed by the chapel rifles, which is how the family, of course, made all of their money. So I was inspired a little bit there by um, Sarah Winchester, the real life Sarah Winchester. But I mean, it's a totally fictional character. My, my, my character was inspired by her. And so the novel really focuses on the sisters as they grow up and they, they begin to get married one by one. And when they get married, tragedy soon follows. And it's a very dark and twisted, but I think in a like, I hope in a, in a kind of a fun way. And so the question is, you know, can my character, her, her name is Iris. She's the second to youngest sister. Can she or can any of the sisters survive what seems to be this curse? And so that's really what the, the novel focuses on um, is, is the story of, of survival. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of using it, playing around with it as a real allegory, I think, just for patriarchy, women living under in a patriarchal society and at the oppression of that and, and how you can escape and sort of reclaim yourself. I will say when I you know, was working on it, I was like, well, are people going to be able to relate to this? You know, it's the 1950s and things have changed so much. And then, you know, right when the book came out, we had, you know, Roe Ro versus Wade overturned and this, you know, there's this movement, of course, has been building to, you know, kind of drag us back to the 1950s. So it became much more relevant than it, you know, than I would have wanted it to be relating just kind of in a scary kind of sickening way. But, you know, suddenly the 1950s world that I created in the novel was really resonating a lot with, with what was happening today. So just sort of a connection to, <laughs> to the outside world, the political world there. Well, thank you for that fantastic synopsis. You touched on a lot of the themes that I really want to dive in on. So I think that this is going to be a great conversation. But I have to say, I grew up in that area of Connecticut where the book takes place. And while I wasn't in one of the, you know, uber rich Gothic mansions myself, I'm very familiar with them. And you really, you nailed the vibe. I've got to say. (laughs) I was reading it and I was like, this all adds up. This all feels very realistic. Oh, good. Because I I have never lived in Connecticut. I've been there, but I... I lived in Boston for a while, but yeah, so, oh, great. Well, I'm so glad to hear that. It really had that, that I don't know, very specific Greenwich, Connecticut quality to it. <laughs> but this is a novel that, as you've already discussed, really engages with and explores the social societal expectations that are placed upon kind of upper class women in the mid 20th century and beyond. So I was I was wondering, what was your inspiration for developing a, fami- a familial curse that's really based around those expectations where the chapel sisters, as it says in the book, first get married and then get buried. Mm -hmm. You know, a novel kind of takes shape in such a weird way. I mean, at least for me, you know, it's, it's not, it's not like a clear idea sort of comes to me and I'm like, Oh, I'm going to explore this topic. It sort of builds over a longer period of time. And so, you know, I was interested in, in the real life Sarah Winchester for people who don't know, was she married into the Winchester rifle family. So the Winchester rifles are these very iconic American rifles that were around, you know, from the Civil War up into, you know, into the, the 20th century. And her house is in San Jose. The Winchester Mystery House is a big tourist attraction now. But so, you know, I had in mind, I, I kind of had in mind, I, I was, I wanted to do something with the character that was like that. I was very intrigued by this idea of, of the family, you know, selling these weapons and, and, these instruments of death and then how, how could that 
sort of morally impact the family. I was very interested in that idea, these legends of Sarah Winchester, that she was supposed to be haunted by these ghosts. I, that's, you know, that's not really true in terms of those are like a lot of myths that were built up around her, but the story was very intriguing to me. So, so I, I kind of had that idea. I wanted it to be gothic and have this haunted house. So I think because of that, it became about a more wealthy family, a more privileged family, just because those are the elements that I was working with, you know, the house and, and the, this legacy and all of this money and, and that sort of thing and power. So, you know, it kind of, as it, as the story kind of took shape, that's how it, that's how it developed that it was this, wealthy family. And then there was a lot to explore with that. Both the fact that, you know, these women were very privileged, they had a very privileged upbringing and, you know, way more than most (laughs) women, you know, at their time. But at the same time, they were almost uh, imprisoned in their house and didn't have really any freedom. So it's sort of this dichotomy that I'm looking at the ways that they're very privileged, but then in the ways I think all women of that time were very restricted as well, just sort of kind of balancing those two aspects. Yeah, absolutely. I think diving into the to the Sarah Winchester aspect a little bit more, how did you think about kind of crafting a novel that really engages with aspects and themes of a well-known historical figure's life, but also very clearly stands on its own as a complete story that is following unique characters and the impacts of family legacy on their lives? Yeah, so this is something that I like to do. I did it a little bit in Dietland, but then in this novel, the Cherry Robbers, I have Sarah Winchester influence, but I also have Georgia O'Keeffe influence. So I, I don't know why I do this, but in the novel I'm working on now, I do the same thing. <laughs> so I like to kind of take a real person and sort of fictionalize them. So not, not a fictionalization of a real person. We have, you know, there's a lot of great novels that do that write a write a novel about a real person and kind of, you know, stick very closely to that person's life story, just fictionalized, you know, told in a dramatic way. This is not that. This is kind of taking a little nugget of a real person and then using that as a springboard to create my own character. And I really like doing that. Again, I don't know why, but I do. And so, yeah, in this case, with Sarah Winchester and and then also George O'Keefe, you know, as I said, the main character, just for people who, who don't know, is a very, very famous painter. And so there's, there are kind of echoes of George O'Keefe, even though she's a completely fictional character. But I, I don't know. I find that that kind of grounds me a little bit. It gives me this sense of, of this, you know, real person that existed. But then, you know, the fun of being a fiction writer is being able to just make up whatever you want. So it's taking this kind of fascinating people from real life, but then saying, I'm going to put my own spin on that life and what that life could have been if it was different or, or taking those elements and just doing something new. And that's the fun of being a fiction writer, I think. So yeah, it's a technique I really like, and I'm still still doing. (laughs) But, you know, Sarah Winchester was kind of my way into this novel. So she was a really important element of the Cherry Robbers and and how it came to be. I love that. Clearly, clearly, as a method, it's working fantastically. But I love the (laughs) idea of Sarah Winchester as kind of being the the door opening. Yes, to, to the novel. To me, one of the central themes that the Cherry Robbers asks the question, what happens when you dare to disrupt the status quo of power structures in society? Belinda is constantly calling into question power structures, and she tries to really push her daughters away from the socially prescribed path of marriage. Iris ends up kind of escaping by believing her mother, but then also through her queerness. She dares to look for a very different path to happiness in life. 
So I was wondering, how did you think about writing in a way that's really kind of purposefully pushing back against what life should look like for women in this historical time period? I think that was part of the fun. I mean, it's it's easier as a contemporary author looking back, you know, at a different time period. And so, of course, at the time they were living, they didn't know about the women's movement and all of the civil rights movements and what was to come. So I'm writing the novel from the perspective of Iris or Sylvia, the same person, you know, from today. So she looks back with all the knowledge that she has today to tell that story. And I think that she's really conscious of telling it as as a woman who grew up in a set of circumstances that she rejected and that she pushed back against those societal norms and managed to escape from that. And so I was very interested in that story. I think that, you know, Dietland, my first novel, does that as well. And the pushing back against the what a fat woman should be and, and how, she, you know, her relationship with her body, pushing back against those those stories that we have of how women are supposed to be and rebelling against that. And so I guess as a feminist and an author, that's just part of my my consciousness of, of I'm very interested in stories like that of women who push back against norms and on all sorts of different ways. And the Cherry Roberts is very much about that as well. So that's just something that I'm very interested in writing those kinds of stories. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense to me. I, I love how you say it's kind of part of your consciousness. So it ends up just kind of being a part of the end product of, of everything that you're working on. I think something that I really enjoyed about the Terry Robbers is I feel like it's really interesting to look at some of this pushback and, and how it looks to create a new life at a time before sort of the feminist movement really kicked off. I feel very lucky often to live in the contemporary moment where there's tried and true methodology and and solidarity and, and group think about what feminism looks like and how we can kind of subvert the societal mold. But Iris doesn't necessarily have any of those prescriptions. She's just trying to make her way in the world, generally speaking. Yeah, I think that on the one hand, it's like she's kind of lucky because it's sort of in her heart. She doesn't want the traditional lifestyle of a woman of the 1950s. And so it's you know, it's it's easier for her in some way because she's not giving up something that she really wants. I juxtapose her with her youngest sister and how they want very different things and how they have very different outcomes. And I think that that, just looking at activism in, in general, I think that they're just, we're all different pe kinds of people, you know? And so, for example, looking at the fat activism that I've been involved in and, and that informed my first novel, you know, there are some people who are just more comfortable saying, I don't care if society doesn't like my body or like what I look like. I like myself and that's it. There are some people who are just more kind of, for whatever reason, <laughs> just how they're made, are able to to stand up to something like that in a way that might be more incredibly difficult for another person just because their personality is different or their background or what, you know their circumstances or whatever it is. So I do think part of it, and the Cherry Roberts is that Iris has, she's born a certain way she, in terms of she doesn't really want the things that the other other women of her time want. And that ends up saving her life, really, and, and benefiting her. And I think that bigger picture, she can inspire her other women with her with her choices and the path that she took. But, you know, I think that she just kind of had that rebel streak that was in her. And then luckily, she listened to it and nurtured it and followed it where it took her. 
Yeah. So this is also a novel that really explores the impact of family legacy, both through Belinda's kind of generational trauma of maternal mortality and childbirth, and then also through the legacy of being part of the Chapel family and the business of being a gun manufacturer. Why was it important to you that Iris kind of had to try and shed from her family legacy in order to find freedom in her life as Sylvia? I mean, I think that she was carrying a lot of those burdens from the previous generations of her family, as we all do in our own in our own way. And I wanted to so for her sister, this legacy, I'm playing I'm playing around in the story with it as being something that is fatal to them right if they if they don't confront this legacy or sort of rebel against it it has fatal consequences for them and so there's a lot at stake you know in this novel the way it's set up in terms of how you deal with this legacy that you've inherited and i think that iris one of the ways that she deals with it is through her art as an artist and she deals a lot with her trauma through her art and her art we don't get into a tremendous amount of detail about her life as an artist because it mostly focuses on her when she's younger. But just the idea of how, even though she's blocked out all of these things about her family and her legacy and what happened, it's all there in her subconscious and that so much art comes from the subconscious. And so that it's there in her work. And I think some way she feels conflicted about it. It's like she has these these difficult things that happen and, and then she turns them into something beautiful for people to look at. But at the same time for her as an artist, it helps her process it and, and deal with it. So I think that her art, which I know for me as a writer is just one way to deal with, with that. And, you know, you don't have to be a professional painter or writer to, to have that. You can just be anybody who has any kind of artistic expression or creative expression or hobby that can help you deal with that. And so I think that's one of the ways in the novel that that she deals with that legacy is through her creativity and i also think acknowledging that she can't fully understand it it's not really something she can conquer and understand but she can just get through it as best that she can and trying to, to face face the past yeah that makes a lot of sense i love what you said about her art being sort of a way that she that she grapples with that family legacy as an adult and and of course, the whole premise of the novel really is that Iris can't necessarily escape her family legacy, not only because it's showing up in her art, but because at the very beginning, a journalist gets too close to discovering who Sylvia Wren really is, that she's actually Irish Chapel. And then Iris has to sort of make the decision to, to take telling the story into her own hands as she's writing these diaries. So I guess that a question that I'm really thinking about or, or a theme that really came up for me after after reading is the idea of is it even possible to actually escape the environments and circumstances that we're raised in? And is it possible to be free from those fam familial structures? On the one hand, it feels like Iris finds ways in which the answer to that question might be yes. And then in other ways, it feels like the answer might be no. Yeah, I think that, you know, in the present day narrative, she says she's been running and running and running, but did she really get anywhere? <laughs> so, so she changed the circumstances of her, her daily life she lives in a different place and she's surrounded by different people and lives her life the way that she wants. But yes, yeah, she can't outrun these experiences that shaped her and these tragedies that she has in her past. That they're always going to follow her. And she, she knows that, that, you know, it's going to follow her wherever, wherever she goes. She was thinking in the novel about her sister and trying to get her sister to run away with her, her younger sister. And she comes to the realization that no matter where they go, her sister's never going to be able to let this go. And that it's just going to tear her apart no matter where she is. So you, she couldn't really run away with it. 
from it. But Iris was just a different type of a person and was able to really bury that. That was one of her survival, her coping mechanisms when she was growing up. And so, yeah, she did on a daily basis in her present day life, she did bury that. But of course it came out in her art and then it comes out in other ways. So I won't, I won't do a spoiler, but she's in the present day narrative, we meet Sylvia. And I know it's probably confusing for people who haven't read the book that Sylvia is Iris or the same person and that she's haunted by a ghost. So the question is who or what is that ghost and what is haunting her? So I think that I, I kind of explore this through the idea of haunting and the idea of ghosts. I mean, not I'm not the first writer to do this, obviously, but it's something that a lot of writers have explored or the idea of being haunted by ghosts, or they could be real ghosts, or they could be they could represent other things, other parts of your past or different versions of yourself. And so I think that's how I manifest that in the story for Sylvia. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And something that was really compelling about the novel to me that I kept almost I was I was almost keeping track of is all of the different ways it felt like haunting was manifesting because Iris is clearly a very haunted character, I think, as we would often talk about it in sort of a very realistic way, and that her past is often carried with her. And there's some kind of mysterious or unexplained things that have happened in her past, but she carries it in a very different way than her mother, for example, who smells roses everywhere and is almost having premonitions of death and feels very specifically that she's being haunted by ghosts. Mm. So there's a lot of different kinds of haunting that happen in the novel, too. Yeah, I really wanted to explore that. I, mean, I think that's a hallmark of, of gothic fiction is, especially I think in more feminist gothic, is the idea of ghosts and, and then are they real ghosts or is it something else? And, and exploring that idea of, of yeah, haunting and, and, and the things that kind of follow us around. And I think that gothic fiction is a really interesting format to just play around with that idea. And I think that it can be a very you know, a very political kind of fiction, even Toni Morrison's Beloved, that that's a gothic novel. So a go- the gothic can be a form where you can really explore this this idea of the past and, and the idea of ghosts and hauntings and that sort of thing, but really in a more political way if you want to. And I really like that. Yeah, that's a really fun aspect of the genre. It, there's a lot of room to explore. Yeah. Speaking of some of the more feminist leanings of the novel, I also wanted to talk about female solidarity for a minute, because it struck me while I was reading that... While Belinda is really worried about something bad happening to Astrid after she announces she's getting married, and that does come to be, at the same time, bad things also start happening when the solidarity between the uh, the blah 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 blah. Sorry, <laughs> when the solidarity between the Chapel sisters ends up getting fractured, partially because of Belinda and partially because of Iris's actions ahead of that first wedding. So how did you think about writing the fracturing of that relationship between the sisters? And were you thinking specifically about the ways that their bonds of solidarity were dissolving? Or was that kind of something that that I maybe read into it? (laughs) Yeah, I think so. Just, you know, for people who don't know, the oldest sister, Aster, is going to get married. This is the beginning of the novel. And then Belinda, the mother, predicts that some horrible thing's going to happen to Aster if she gets married. And so... Iris, in her own way, tries to stop the wedding from happening. She's a kid, so it's not really in any way that's going to really work. I think I have these six sisters, and it's very hard to write a novel with a ca- that large of a cast of characters. And you know, they're all they're all girls as well, so they're 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 harder to differentiate from each other. And they're all kind of the same age, you know, generally the same age, really. So I felt like 
on the one hand, I really loved writing about their sisterhood and their bond and how close they were. But it sort of came alive more when I put them in conflict with each other. <laughs> That's how I got to know them, really, is through their disagreements and 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 the things that they kind of were tearing at their their bond. So um, just as a writer, I think that was really important to go to go through to explore the different characters and how they related to each other when you put them in these kind of conflicts with each other. But I think in some ways, in some ways, they're like a kind of, you know, at the beginning of the novel, Silver refers to them as this, ma- this giant mask as one being. And then at other times, they, yeah, they, I mean, throughout the story, they start to splinter. And that's one of the things that haunts Sylvia is that she, several of her sisters, she left things on very bad terms with them and, and that she can never go back and, and try and fix that. And that's one of the things that really haunts her. But and I was very interested in this idea of, of the sisters, this idea that they were very much imprisoned in a way in this house. <laughs> I mean, not literally, but, you know, restricted and lived in this very restricted world and that they had each other and they had their own little society. And that was a lot of fun to write. And I really enjoyed doing that. And then the kind of heartbreaking aspect of just slowly tearing that apart. And, you know, their mother is kind of drops these little bombs and then kind of leaves because she's not really present in their life. So she kind of is this agent of chaos, I guess, in a way, even though she's just interpreting, she's trying to warn them and help them. But at the same time, it just seems like she's not doing anything but causing trouble for them. So yeah, there's a lot to deal with in the dynamics of the sisters. And that was one of the most challenging things was, was juggling all those characters and how they all related to each other in different ways. But it was fun as well. I love what you said about Belinda being an agent of chaos. I, I really wanted to, she was a really fascinating character to me and I was trying to figure out how to write a question about her and I couldn't figure out how I wanted to frame it because I think for some of the sisters and for some parts of the novel, it feels like she's the villain. But then in so many other parts of the novel, she's clearly just a woman who's dealing with trauma, who's trying her best to save her kids from that, but is so detached from the whole thing that it that it's not quite coming <laughs> off correctly. So I feel yeah. like Agent of Chaos is absolutely <laughs> the right vibe to describe her. <laughs> exactly. I think, I think in a lot of women's fiction, and especially if you look back in that era, the, the mother is often the enemy and the mother is often portrayed as one of the main antagonists of the novel. And I think that women often have a lot of resentment, not just in fiction, of course, but in real life, when the mother is the one that sort of enforces society rules, says, OK, well, you have to look this way and act this way and dress this way if you want to get a boyfriend and, and succeed and, and everything. And the mother's the enforcer, basically, in the house of those kinds of social mores, because she knows she has to train her daughter to, to behave a certain way so that she'll be accepted in society. But then the girls end up hating the mother. I know that comes up, for example, I'm thinking of Sylvia Plath, for example, where she the character hates her mother and everything in the bell jar hates her mother and everything that she stands for when the mother is also a victim of the same society and that she's just trying the best way she can to help her daughter navigate what she knows is an unfair society that she's going to be living in. And so I think the bell jar is one of my favorite novels and, and did influence me um, for, for this book. And I think I'm very interested in that idea. Yeah. As the mother is sort of a villain and antagonist. And that's something that I try and push against in my fiction. And in Dietland, I pushed against that as well, because the mother often plays the role in, in terms of a book like Dietland, which is about dieting and that sort of thing. A mother's often the enforcer of wanting the daughter to lose weight and, 
And anyway, that's something I'm very interested in exploring, the mother-daughter relationship and how the mother comes across in novels of, of what kind of role that she plays. Thank you for sharing all of that. I'm really glad that we ended up going down that path because I, <laughs> I, I just found Belinda so fascinating and I really... I think I really picked up your intentions there with she's in an antagonistic role, but she's not the villain. There's so much other stuff going on with her. Yeah. And then, of course, Iris as a child grows up in an environment that is, of course, as we've already said, full of these close bonds that she has with her sisters. And then as she inches toward, toward adulthood, she becomes more and more isolated, both through the deaths of her sisters and then also because she has such a different attitude about life and living than her sisters do and then it ends with her kind of reputation as Sylvia Wren being a recluse to me that emotional isolation also really contributes a lot to the haunted vibe that the novel has and I'm curious about how you thought about Iris's descent into isolation as you were writing and whether that was sort of intentional to kind of keep the haunted aspect up or if there was something else going on I think that (laughs) I think that that ended up Again, when you're writing a novel, sort of t- sometimes you create something like, okay, I want to, I want this artist to be very reclusive. And then, and then, okay, so, okay, I'm writing this reclusive artist, but then it's like, okay, well, when you're writing the novel, it's like, well, why is she like that? And then you have to look at it in a deeper way. So initially, the idea of being a recluse is very appealing to me. Um, I, I kind of have that in my nature of like wanting to just cut myself off from the world, but at the same time, it's not healthy and you need to be around other people. So I think maybe I have this fantasy somewhere of being this very wealthy recluse and, and just cutting myself off from the world, which I know is not really a healthy thing, but sometimes, I don't know, I think that's how it made it into the novels. I was very interested in that idea. But then as I wrote it into the story, it, it did, it was an integral part of Sylvia at, in her her present day life that she has a lot of secrets and she doesn't want people to bother her and ask her about it. She doesn't want people to ask her about her past. And she, she, it's easier to just not deal with people than to have to tell them where she came from or otherwise she'll have to lie to people and she can never really be her authentic self. And so I think that she just decided it was easier to just kind of cut herself off that she was just She's very, in the present day narrative, she's very cranky, older woman, which I kind of had a lot of fun writing. But I think that also she talks about how her, she has PTSD and these things that have never, she never had help for. And she's just sort of angry and she has, she's very irritable. I think she doesn't like dealing with people. She wants to be in her artist and she has her wife, Lola. And that's really, she feels like all she needs. But I feel like it's like a protection for her that she can't really be open because she can't be herself she's really living a lie basically and so she kind of has to be that way but then it turns out she likes it as well so that was a fun thing to write (laughs) for me yeah i also have the compulsion towards reclusivity myself so i understand where you're coming from (laughs) it's great it would just be fun wouldn't it i don't know i think it'd be fun i think it would be too (laughs) i'm with you Something else that kind of contributes towards I- Iris's isolation when she's younger, though, is the fact that she's that she's queer and she can't really understand her sister's attraction towards the idea of marriage and babies, babies and the specific men in their lives. How did you kind of think about how Iris's sexuality was going to play out in some of the dynamics of the novel as you were writing? Well, so she has one of her older sisters is queer as well. And so I think that she... As I was writing the novel, I, I think, you know, 
I was exploring that character, Daphne, the older sister. And I think that Iris was sort of learning a lot by her, you know, through her interactions with Daphne. I mean, she was, she was sort of intrigued by the things that her older sister were, was involved in, whether her friendship with this character, Veronica, and, and her kind of spying on them one day sort of awakened in her this, these sexual feelings that she had never had before. And so I think that that, that was sort of a pathway to her to, to understanding herself is, is through her older sister, because in her world of the 1950s and this very sheltered life she lived, she would never have been exposed to other kinds of relationships besides just traditional, kind of traditional relationships that her sisters, other sisters were interested in. So it, it was kind of these feelings that she had, she, she didn't understand. And then when she saw Daphne and Daphne's relationships and that sort of thing, it sort of became something that was more like a, a concrete, you know, something potential, more concrete reality, even though she knew that was something that would have to be hidden and it was something that was considered wrong by society, but that it was an example of it for her. So that was important. I think it was, as a writer, it was easier for me to kind of develop Iris because she had Daphne, who was the more adventurous character and who, who was just very bold and wasn't really worried about what other people thought. And so the, the relationship between the two of them as sisters really helped me with that aspect, I think, and Iris's awakening. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I, I speaking of uh, Iris's relationship with her sisters too, because I think that in so many ways, especially as we're kind of tracking Iris's growth throughout the novel, we're able to really see almost the different parts of her older sister's personalities and how they kind of play out with her. But there's also the re- the very close relationship she has with her youngest sister, Hazel, to the point where they, if if all of the sisters start off as kind of being a mass. Iris and Zelly are really the ones that are almost one being at the beginning, but then end up kind of drifting apart as the novel goes on in a really tragic way. How did you sort of think about the ways in which Iris might influence or not influence Hazel and kind of the difference in crafting that relationship versus Iris rela- Iris's relationship with her other sisters? So Hazel, who she called Zelly in the novel, Iris is the fifth in the line of six sisters, so <laughs> she's down there at the tail end. But I think that she she says in the novel they all kind of paired off, the older two, the middle two, and the younger two. And they all shared a bedroom with their kind of the one they were paired up with. So so Iris and Zelly shared a bedroom and were always kind of put together as the two youngest. And I think that in that sense, Iris be kind of came, even though she was the fifth sister in her relationship with Zelly, she was the older sister. So she got to play the role of the oldest and then Zelly was the youngest when it was just like the two of them. And of course, for the last third of the novel, it is just the two of them. And so I have a sister. I, I have one sister, younger sister. <laughs> so I think I kind of, I know what it's like to be the oldest. And I think that, yeah, when, when the dynamics change and there's not all the sisters together, but just the two youngest, then Iris takes on this other aspect of her personality where she's becomes a responsible one and she's the one looking out for her younger sister whereas when all the sisters are together she's one of the babies and has to do what everyone else tells her to do so yeah it definitely shifts her 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 role in the family definitely shifts when it's just her and her younger sister and that's definitely i think the most important relationship she has in the family is with her younger sister and they're like a pair and that so there's throughout the novel, there's a series of tragedies. I won't spell it out, but that happened to the sisters. And then 
Iris is sort of this witness as a kid to what happens to her older sisters. But then when we get toward the end of the novel, it's just her and Zelly together. And, and then we see that the curse of the family play out in a, in a different way when it's just the two of them and that she's the one trying to stop Zelly and from, from running off with this man and, and how that basically destroys her, <laughs> destroys her what happens with Zelly. And then she has to basically rebuild herself. But yes, I would say that was the most important relationship that she had in her own family is with her younger sister. Switching gears here. I want to be respectful of your time. So this will be my last oh, no, question, but I think that this is also a novel that calls into question some, some of the ethics of capitalism and, and the idea of profiting off, off violence. Belinda throughout the novel, as we've talked about, believes that she's being haunted by the ghosts of everyone who's been killed by a chapel gun. There's a sense that kind of behind the curtain of the chapel's upper class life, something sort of sinister is happening because of the way that they make their money. So I was wondering how you thought about the impact of generational wealth and how that generational wealth was developed while you were crafting the novel. Yeah, so we have the chapels, of course, the heart of the novel, but then the the two older sisters both married and well, yeah, they both marry into these very wealthy families. The older sister marries this guy whose great great grandfather was one of the robber barons and and then the the second oldest sister marries someone whose family's in the oil industry. So yeah, they're definitely playing around with these families that have this obscene amount of money and privilege and wealth. And I think that one of the ways I'm exploring that is through this idea of Belinda thinking that their family is is cursed by the haunted by the by the victims of the chapel weapons and you're dealing with a gun I mean there's all there's a more obvious victim right I mean you know when somebody's shot and, and killed but you know I think that that in some ways is, is a metaphor for other kinds of businesses where it's not like somebody's not harmed in such an obvious way but that it just plays out differently that the way that these kind of really wealthy tycoons can exploit society and exploit people for their own benefit. So in the Chapel family, it just plays out in a much more black and white way, but you're talking about life and literal death. And that's sort of, I think, just a more extreme example of how it can play out in other, you know, industries and the way people are exploited in the, in, you know, these cap in the capitalist society, but that, I was interested in just focusing on the, the firearms and the unique aspect of that. And of course that gave me a lot to, a lot of interesting things in terms of a Gothic framework to play with or the ghosts again and all of that. So it was, it's such an interesting idea thinking about again, the idea of Sarah Winchester and, and whether the legend that she thought she was haunted by the, by the victims of the Winchester rifle. But I did an event at the, with the Winchester house and the historian there were saying she didn't really know if at that time, this idea of guilt of guns and that sort of thing really existed. But it was interesting that that this legend kind of sprung up around it, that she had this guilt, that that's where her money had come from. And that was her, the legacy that she had married into. And so it's just something I thought a lot about, of the idea of profiting off other people's suffering and death. And I find it a very compelling idea to explore and think about, you know, I don't, I don't have the answers myself of like, but it's, it was a very interesting idea and it gave me a lot to work with as a writer and in a sort of horrifying way. It did make me think if that my family has something like that, how would I feel? And it's, it's interesting to think about, especially when maybe you yourself are involved in it, that you've benefited from it financially through your family and what response, what moral responsibility might you have? And I think in the cherry robbers, Iris runs away 
I, I don't want to give away too much, but she she's very cognizant that she doesn't want that money, that she sees it as blood money, and so she she reinvents herself. So she is that is a very important thing to her is, is not living off that money. Yeah, she's very she's very conscious about it that that's not that while she still might be affected by her family legacy in other ways and the traumas that she kind of has to deal with, she's not going to be affected by it and that she's not going to kind of continue the cycle of of living off of this money basically. Yeah, exactly. That she her father dies alone basically and we don't really ever know who gets all of that money and and so his legacy ended up just kind of being just crumbling old house and things that nobody to leave his money to and yeah so it's just kind of not the legacy that he thought he would have for sure well there's so many things that we could have talked about with the cherry robbers but is there anything that you specifically wanted to talk about that i haven't asked you about uh i think we've covered a lot of interesting topics i think that the cherry robbers is i as i as i wrote with dietland as i wrote with cherry robbers as i'm doing with my next novel my motto is subversive but fun <laughs> so i want to write a novel that you could just read as a page turner, but that if you want to read something in a deeper way, it's there. There's a lot there to think about in terms of feminism, you know, intergenerational trauma, the role of the artist, family legacy, all of that. There's a lot there to sort of think about, but that's sort of wrapped up in a package of a gothic ghost story. And so, yeah, I hope people who haven't read it will will give it a chance and, and see what they think. I uh, I think that would be great. Yeah, I think it's it has. I had a lot of fun writing it, so I just I'm really happy that it's out there in the world and that people are responding to it in such a positive way. Absolutely, listeners, if you haven't listened uh, read the Cherry Robbers yet, I do highly highly recommend it, and I hope that you will check it out. I know that you mentioned that you're working on your third novel. Is there anything that our our listeners should be keeping their eyes peeled for from you in the future? Well, this is a different, all my books have been very different besides having this common feminism thread. But so yeah, this one is a thriller, the present day thriller. So I've always wanted to try that. It's like a detective story, but there's no detective in it. But there's a, my character plays the role that a detective would normally play, but she's not a detective. So I wanted to try my hand at this genre for a long time. And I'm having, actually having a, a lot of fun with it. So I hope to finish up that book next year. Well, that's very exciting. That sounds super fun and interesting. And I'll absolutely be keeping my eye out for it when it eventually comes out. Oh, thank you. And thanks for inviting me. I had a lot of fun chatting. I appreciate all your smart questions and just how you really engaged with the with the novel. So thank you. Oh, thank you. And thank you so much for coming and having such a wonderful conversation with me. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Bye. All right, listeners, next week we'll be back with another Miami Book Fair interview. I'm talking to Ingrid Rojas Contreras about her memoir, The Man Who Could Move Clouds. So I will talk to you all next week. Goodbye, everybody. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to our website, rebelgirlsbook.club, and clicking read along with the show. You can follow us at RGBCPod on Instagram, at Rebel Girls Book Club on Facebook, at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly. 
and it's by The Gaze. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.